Amen. Thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication. And I certainly appreciate all of you being here this morning to share together and worship in the Lord. And, and I trust that it will indeed be a, a time of blessing for you. I've already been blessed, haven't you? The singing, the, you know, just a time of prayer, being before the Lord in prayer and, and, and singing these wonderful, powerful hymns of faith and uh, how they reinforce our faith and strengthen us in our relationship with the Lord. And as I've said before, keep your, your worship guide close by through the week. Go back over these hymns and read the words. Read through the, uh, the responsive reading, the scriptures, and just meditate on what God is saying through uh, all that we provide for you in your worship guide. And so uh, it's, it's a wonderful tool to use. And so this morning I'll invite you, if you will, to turn in the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. We'll begin looking at uh, verse 22 there. And uh, as we look at the, the text, just kind of understanding what's going on, Jesus is, is making his trek along through the region of Judea. He's accompanied not only by his 12 disciples, but he's also accompanied by quite a few other people. Uh, just about everywhere Jesus went, he was followed by a multitude, as the scriptures describe, and sometimes a great multitude of people. And that multitude were made up of a variety of people. I mean, a range of people. You might have a group there that are, 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 are absolute avowed adversaries, you know, against the Lord. They're, they're looking for ways to, to, uh, to undermine his ministry, to, to discredit him before the people. Uh, and then you have the curiosity seekers, those who are along for the ride, those who want to see a miracle, who want to see uh, what this radical rabbi is going to come up with next. And then you got superficial followers who are tagging along. They like what Jesus is saying. They like how he's conducting himself. But, you know, there's no real serious commitment there. And then you have the core group, which consists of his disciples and some other folks who are are true believers who really believe that Jesus is who he claims. And so all along the way, Jesus is, is ministering. He's preaching and he's teaching. And primarily the subject that he is teaching and preaching is the kingdom of God. He wants people to understand that as he has said and, and his predecessor John the Baptist said over and over, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he wants the people to understand the imminence of the kingdom of God and, and the need for them to be prepared for the coming of the kingdom of God. So just as Jesus's teachings demonstrated his divine authority on any matter related to the kingdom of God, uh, his miracles also pretty much substantiated, you know, his, his divine authority to be able to, 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 to make the declarations that he was. And so as we see, uh, we, we saw how he healed the, the lady uh, that came into the synagogue last time. She was severely crippled and Jesus healed her and, and did that which no other person could do. And, and uh, so we saw that. And so here today, as Jesus is going along and he's teaching and he's preaching, we find that Jesus comes upon what I call a provocative question. Let's look at verse 22, first of all. It says, and Luke is describing, and I agree with what Tim said uh, in describing the gospel writer Luke. Luke is a, he's a stickler for details. I mean, after all, he's a, he's a Gentile physician, and physicians have a way of being. 
sticklers for details, and I'm glad they are. But Luke, as you well know, was not only the, the writer, the inspired writer of the Gospel of Luke, but Luke was also uh, one of the companions of the Apostle Paul as he traveled on his missionary journeys. And thanks to Luke, we have what we call the Book of Acts. And Luke was a very detailed describer of all the, the events and happenings. So here Luke is picking up and describing where things are with Jesus on his, uh, uh, his, his mission, if you will. In verse 22, and he went throughout, uh, went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And you stop and think about the setting behind this. You may recall back in chapter nine, again, Luke focusing on details. Uh, Luke was wanting us to understand the, the, the pivotal point that, that chapter nine was in the, the gospel of Luke and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 51, Luke made this statement. If you want to go back and look at it, or you can just make a note in, in uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 51. Luke says, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. That is his crucifixion, Jesus's crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension. Is that time was very much approaching that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go up to Jerusalem. So at this point in Jesus's earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus knows that the next big step for him is to go to Jerusalem where he has an appointment there with a cross on a hill called Calvary. So there's a sense of urgency now. Jesus has ministered all up in the northern regions of Galilee, teaching and preaching, working miracles, but now he realizes it's time for him to begin to move towards Jerusalem. Folks, he's at this point in chapter 13 in Luke's gospel, our Lord is only months away from his arrest and his trials and his crucifixion and his resurrection. So you understand the, the imminence of, of, of uh, and the urgency of stepping up his ministry. So Jesus is teaching, and as he's teaching, you know, he's interrupted. We see that quite often. Different ones will interrupt Jesus as he's, he can't get through a whole message without somebody injecting something. But you know, Jesus knew that was going to happen. He knows this is going to happen. And he uses these interruptions as opportunities to teach the people. So what is this provocative question that we find in verse 23? It says, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Are there, in others, I just don't think that according to the way you're teaching, that as many people, uh, that there's not going to be as many people getting saved as maybe we have been led to believe. And so this man, an anonymous man who had listened to Jesus teach about the kingdom of God, he detected there was, there was a difference between what Jesus was saying about those who would enter the kingdom of God and what the leaders of Judaism had been telling the people. According to the leaders in Judaism, virtually every descendant of Abraham was guaranteed to have a place in the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus seems to be teaching that that's not really the case. But you can understand where the, the Jewish leaders might be coming from. For instance, in the book of of Sanhedrin, chapter 10, verse 1. You won't find that in your Bible. It's part of the rabbinical writings of the Jews. 
But in that particular Jewish writing, it says, quote, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. All Israelites. And you know, oftentimes when Jesus would be teaching, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, they would say, oh, that doesn't pertain to us. What you're saying doesn't. We're, we're Abraham's children. We're, we're guaranteed to be in God's favor. We're guaranteed to be a part of God's glorious kingdom. We're, we're in, man. You can understand almost when you hear passages like Isaiah chapter 45. I'll go back and read in Isaiah 45, verse 17, where it says, But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. And see, you see, they were taking a promise given by God through the prophet Isaiah to individual Israelites, those who would be truly people of faith, faithful Israelites. And they were, they were erroneously making it a security blanket for all Israelites. So everybody in Israel who were descendants of Abraham, well, they just thought for sure that that was a, a national promise. Just like maybe people in the United States who have this feeling that somehow we are a, quote, Christian nation. Folks, we're the furthest thing from a Christian nation. Thank God there are Christians in this country. Thank God the Lord works through Americans in, in wonderful ways. But salvation is not a national matter. It's an individual matter. It's an individual relationship. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary on this chapter, on this very verse, he made this statement. He said, salvation was always individual never national. You see, Jesus seizes upon this question that has been offered now, this very provocative question. He knows that this is, is, this is going to raise some eyebrows. This is going to ruffle some feathers. And so he wants to pose it to see how Jesus is going to teach. And so the Lord gives us correct teaching on the concept of who's going to be saved. Who's in the kingdom of God? Who has that, that assurance? And so from a provocative question as we move forward, we look at a challenging invitation. In verse 23, at the end of that verse, it says, And he, Jesus, said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Now, it's, it's, if you're thinking how Judaism worked, they, they had the idea that, that by lineage, and legalism, they were in. By lineage and legalism, they were in. There was a, a sheared deal. But folks, lineage and legalism doesn't guarantee kingdom citizenship. The Lord's audience had heard him clearly teach salvation by faith in Christ alone and not by religious works. Jesus over and over again pointed them to a personal faith relationship with himself and not relying upon a religious system and not relying upon legalism or the laws of man. And this process depended, by the way, totally upon God the Father. Remember when Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter 6, verse 44, he says, no one can come to me except the Father who, who sent me draws them. No one comes into 
the wonderful relationship of salvation, knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior by faith, unless the Father draws them. Do you realize, those of you who are sincere, genuine followers of Jesus Christ, that your salvation would not be a reality had not Almighty God, sovereign God, eternal God, all-knowing God, drawn you to Christ. We owe our salvation to him. You know, if we were to go back in John's gospel, just, just for a moment, because I, I'll take a very, very familiar episode, a very familiar encounter, if you will, that took place between the Lord Jesus and a Jewish leader. You know the story very well. That Jewish leader was a Pharisee. His name was Nicodemus. In John's gospel, chapter three, it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You may stop. It seems like Jesus missed what you know, Nicodemus is given to this glowing, you know, compliment of recognizing that he is truly from God and they see all of his works. It almost seems like Jesus missed what Nicodemus was, you know, was giving him a wonderful compliment. But Jesus, you see, omniscient God as he is, he read Nicodemus's heart. He read his thoughts. He knew what was pressing on this Jewish leader's mind. He wanted assurance. See, he had taught that through legalism, through Judaism, through descendants from, from Abraham, that you'd be in the kingdom of God. But somehow there was something in the back of his mind that may have caused him to say, is that really enough? And Jesus read him like a book because the thing that Jesus went straight to, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So even in that nighttime encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus was, Jesus was inserting the truth about what it meant to be a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus had clearly taught that salvation demands personal sacrifice. See, the Jews were riding on, on a blanket of, of, of security. There was a, a breeze. All they had to do was just prove their lineage uh, you know, from Abraham, and that was not hard to do in Israel at that time. And, and then also just go by the go by the rules, follow the rules, and, and everything is assured you're you're in. Not so with Jesus. Jesus, having declared himself as the only way to the kingdom, he said, Listen, any man who come after me must deny himself, take up his cross every day, and follow me. There are restrictions, there are demands. One commentary stated that the message of the gospel is not one of self-fulfillment, such as you find in the prosperity gospel being promoted so often out there on TV land. But it's not so much on self-fulfillment, but on self-denial. 
In other words, those who are seeking salvation, those who are seeking to be in a saving relationship with God that would ensure them entrance into the kingdom of God and citizenship in the eternal uh, uh, kingdom in heaven, then they must come by the narrow way. And we'll talk about that. When the Lord invites the crowd around him, he challenges them there in verse 24. You, you get the sense of, of effort. In other words, it's not just something that is just bestowed upon you. There in verse 24, Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's interesting that Jesus would select that verb strive. It's taken from the Greek word agonizomai, and it means basically it's the word that we get agonized from. It means to fight. It means, it means to, to, to strive towards, to yearn for, and, and to seek after, to be sincere in our faith and a willingness to repent of our sins and, and to, to have an unyielding desire to please Christ and to follow him at all costs. Strive, he says. You're not going to just float into heaven. You're not going to just plop into a right relationship with God. There's got to be some intentional effort on your part in your will to be in that wonderful relationship. Well, the Lord's stringent invitation is rarely reflected in churches today. You know that, and I know it. In an effort to cater to a secular world around us, to attract worldly unbelievers, congregations have gone over out of their way to, to, to abandon so many of these biblical requirements in order to, you know, to, to draw the world's crowd into the church. So many churches now have, have, have forsaken the demands of people who seek to come to Christ and seek to be in the kingdom of God. Well, they don't seem to require them anymore to humbly confess their sins or to genuinely repent of their sins. And you know that word repent means to turn, to take 180 degree and walk away from sin. Genuinely repent and to commit to obediently follow the divine principles of the word of God. That's what salvation is. It's confessing, acknowledging, yes, I'm a sinner. And repenting of our sins. And, and, and making a commitment to live our life following Christ. That's what Jesus is calling people to do all through his earthly ministry. Come and follow me. And with that, be willing to make these, these commitments and be willing to take these steps. And that's why Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. That, you know, the result of what we call easy believism that has infiltrated the Western church and much of Christian America or Christianity in America. The result is the church roles are beginning to fill up with people who are nothing more than superficial Christians who are oblivious to the true, what it means to be truly saved and what it means to be truly in the kingdom of God. These are the ones that Jesus is speaking to in Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. When he says, when he's teaching, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my father in heaven. You know, 
Some people think that they can get into heaven and with it come in just however they want to. That God will accept them because God is a God of love and, and therefore they can, they can just show up in heaven. Reminds me sometimes of people that maybe travel that travel by air, and many of you do, and you know you got to have your suitcase, and you're always trying to you know pack everything you think you're gonna need, you know got to have it in that, especially if you're gonna be gone for several days or a week or whatever, and so your your luggage begins to swell. I don't know how many of you have encountered what we call Jan and I call fondly the airport Nazis. You know, those are the ones that are looking for people with bulging suitcases. You know, they come out of nowhere like a like a, a airport Barney Fife. You know, and then you're pulling that big old suitcase, and they they've spotted you a mile off. They blow the whistle, not really. They pull you over to the side and they say that thing's too heavy. They pull you over to the scale. Well, about you, and you, you put it on the scale. Yeah, yeah, you you're overweight, but but I've got to have my pajamas. I've got to have my my uh, makeup, I, I, but I, I can't do it without my hair dryer. I, it sounds like I'm picking on the ladies. Men, too, you know, I gotta have my Game Boy, you know, and all of that. <laughs> yeah, I gotta, I gotta have it. And he says, You can have it, you can have it, but not on that flight. Listen, Jesus says, There's only one way to come into the kingdom of God. And you've got to come minus the things. People show up thinking that they can bring their selfish pride and, and they can bring their materialistic attitudes and they can, they can bring their unrepented sins and, and they think they can come with their uh, sinful relationships and, 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 and all of that. And the Lord standing at the narrow gate and people bulging with all these things that they found such pleasure in, but they still want to go to heaven. And the Lord is like that airport Nazi says, you can have it, but you won't come through this gate. There's only one way into the kingdom of God. And Jesus moves in chapter 13 to verse 25 as he, he offers this ominous revelation after provocative question a challenge and invitation. This is where the Jews get hit hard as Jesus issues what I call an ominous revelation. Look with me there in verse 25. As Jesus goes on, he says, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at that door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. In other words, they're saying, we're familiar with you, Jesus. We, we've been around you. But he will say in verse 27, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. You know, in stark contrast to that, I think about those very reassuring words that the Lord taught in John's Gospel, chapter 10, using the analogy of the good shepherd. When Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. Do you see the contrast? 
Jesus talking to his faithful followers, the believers, and he's describing them as his sheep. He said, listen, don't you worry. When trials and tribulation come to your way, and you wonder, am I still in? Am I still with the Lord? Is he still with me? Jesus said, don't you worry. I know your voice. I know my sheep. I know my people. And those that the Father gives unto me, no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's security for you, folks. And yet people who thought, well, we know this Jesus. We've heard him teach. We've been around him. We're familiar with him. And in contrast, Jesus turns to them and says, I don't know you. There's no real personal faith relationship there. You notice in verse 25 how Jesus in this analogy uses himself as the owner, describes himself as the owner of the house. He's the keeper of the door. And only he determines who gets in and out. That brings to mind what Jesus, how Jesus spoke of himself in John chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. And when the Son of God says no one, he means no one comes to the Father but by me. And in this horrifying revelation to people who were riding on false assurance, thinking that simply by being descendants of Abraham and being good Jews and following the laws of the land and practicing the rituals and the, the feast and the, 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 the requirements of religion, that they were surely in. Jesus determines when the age of grace will end for each individual and he determines when the age of grace will end for the whole world. And you, you enter into the kingdom of God only on his terms. And when that time comes, when the Lord calls us away from this world, when our life ends, the age of grace is over. Now, I know I'm speaking to the choir this morning, but I think about all the people that I know that have no place for church and for Christianity and faith. Oh, they're caught up in the world, riding along, and somehow in the back of their mind, they think at the end of the, at the, end of the day when it's all said and done, God is good and he loves everybody and I'll get in somehow. Oh, God help them. Because one day their heart will stop beating. One day they'll take their final breath and the age of grace will end for that individual that very moment. They will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. They'll talk about what good lives they lived and what good people they were and how they had heard about Jesus and how they went to church maybe on Easter or Sunday. And, and surely somehow that would be enough to earn them a place in heaven. And the, and the Lord of lords and the King of kings and the judge of all of creation will say, depart from me. I don't know you. Religious activities are no substitute for a close personal relationship with the Lord built on the Lordship of Christ in your life. Can you say like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ 
lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Jesus says, if anyone abides in me, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I abide in him will bring forth much fruit. These are the people that have assurance of being able to enter into the kingdom of God. These are the people that can say with confidence, yes, I belong to the Lord. He belongs to me. Is your life intertwined with Christ? It's not good enough just to be familiar with him. It's not good enough just to know about him. Folks, you've got to know him intimately through a faith relationship with him where you have repented of your sins, put your trust in Jesus Christ as your only way to salvation and commit to follow him, practicing the principles of his word every single day of your life. Folks, that's what Jesus is saying here. I have to chuckle because my eye watched was asked, he said, it looks like you have just fallen. Do you want us to call emergency? <laughs> That's what enthusiastic preaching will get you, I guess. <laughs> I hope the EMS doesn't show up with a stretcher here in a little bit. <laughs> That's never happened to me, Brother Mark, in my preaching in 35 years. Of course, I don't know what war I watched recently. <laughs> Those of you that are joining us virtually by iWatch just when I thought I'd fallen. So if you wonder what's going on. <laughs> okay, as we wrap up and I meet the EMS at the door. The aggravating fact of their exclusion and the Gentiles' inclusion was insult to injury. Not only had Jesus hit them between the eyes like a two by four with the reality that your religion and your rituals and even your biological descendants from Abraham is not going to make you a child of God. That had to be crushing to people who live by that. And yet, just when it seems like it couldn't get worse, Let's look what Jesus says there. Verse 28. He says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a general description of hell. People in hell. The agony of hell. The unending anguish. Torment of hell. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you, who? Those who had built their life and, and put their hope in religion and biological descendants and being descendants of Abraham and, and following the rules and all of that. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out, you said, well, wait a minute. If they're condemned to hell, how can they see, even see what's going on in heaven? Do you remember the story Jesus taught about poor man Lazarus and the rich man? And the rich man died and immediately went into torment in Hades. And from the fires of Hades, 
looked up into what was described the bosom of Abraham, paradise. And who did he see? That poor beggar that he didn't even have time to give crumbs to. He had passed. Now he was in absolute bliss and pleasure and comfort. Jesus says, you will see. You will see. You will see. You will see Father Abraham. Oh yeah, he's there at the banquet. You'll see Isaac. Yes, indeed, he's there at the banquet. You'll see Jacob. Those are the patriarchs. You'll see the prophets. They will be there. Oh, what a glorious thing. Listen, for the average Jew, they looked forward to that glorious time when they would not only be in the kingdom, but they would sit at the table of the Lord's banquet and he would serve them. Oh, how many times in their dreams did they envision themselves seated at the table in heaven in the, in the, in the bliss and the beauty and the splendor of heaven. And Jesus is saying to them in essence, oh, no, you won't. You'll see the banquet. You'll see the guest. You won't be there. What can add more misery and agony to knowing that you're cast out of heaven into hell than to look up and to see what you're missing? Just when you think, well, it, it can't possibly get any worse than that. Look at verse 29. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Who could Jesus possibly be speaking about at that point? Huh. If you get outside of Israel, who's to the north? Who's to the south? Or who's to the east? Who's to the West? Time's up. Gentiles. Can anybody say Gentiles? He said not only will the fathers be there, not only will the prophets be there, not only will the patriarchs be there, but he says there will be faithful Gentiles who have put their, their trust and faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they will be taking your place at the banquet. Who? You're talking about the Lord hitting them with an atomic bomb. Well, Jesus, as I take you back to the beginning, as I end up, Jesus had already answered the provocative question in a different setting. He, he had already answered the provocative question that had the audacity to suggest that instead of it being open-ended invitation for everybody to come, everybody's going to end up in the kingdom of God. Jesus answered that question all the way back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 13. He says these words, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is a gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Have you been listening to the kingdom, prayer, concern, people, group, 
reports from Tim. Have you picked up on the trend, folks? It's not billions of people and millions of people who are leaving this earth and making their way into the kingdom of God. Folks, very few people who live on the face of the earth will ever see the glory of heaven. Jesus knew what he was talking about here. The way is broad and there are many who go on that way. Secularism, humanism, atheism, take your pick. Hinduism, Islam, you go on. It's a broad way. And they're all headed to where they think is going to be glorious and wonderful. And they one day will find themselves plunging into the bottomless, fiery pits of hell. Oh, the, the, the way is narrow. And it's difficult. But you keep your eyes laser focused on that. And determine that through Jesus Christ and Him alone, that's where you will be. And I praise the Lord today that we can have that assurance. There's no reason in the world for a child of God to have any concern, any doubt about where they will go when they leave this world. Everything you need to know is prescribed right here. And to help it get into your heart, the Spirit of God works continually to bring people to salvation. And for those of us who have already made that profession of faith and determined to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that same comforting Holy Spirit to keep us on the straight and narrow. Because Jesus said, those that the Father gives unto me, no one shall in no wise snatch them out of my hand. Do you know that you know that you know? That one day you will be a part of that marvelous and glorious occasion around the banquet table with all the faithful who've gone before us. And they look and see the very precious Messiah himself hosting us, serving us, and loving us. You don't know that, you can. No one else can make that decision for you. A religious leader can't make that decision for you. You're closest friend can't make that decision for you. Your parents can't make that decision for you. That's a decision that the Lord will guide you to make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of the kingdom of God. We know, Lord, that that is manifested in each and every true believer, follower of Jesus Christ, even now here on this earth. But one day, gloriously, your kingdom will come to full fruition when you return to establish your kingdom on this earth. And then subsequently, Lord, when you reign forever in the new heaven and new earth. Oh, praise your holy name that you have made the way clear by which we can enjoy this wonderful assurance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you on behalf of myself and each and every Christian who is here today and those who are tuning in online. Thank you for the wonderful promise that is ours to know that by our faith, by the grace of God and the faith that you've given us to trust in Jesus Christ, we know that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and we will, will be eternally 
citizens of the glorious kingdom of God. That's because of you, Lord, because of your love, because of your grace. And we thank you and we'll thank you every day of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Mark. Tim.